Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Erica. And I'm Abby. And today I'm going to tell you about the murder of Joseph Henry Loveless. So pour yourselves a strong cup of fire department coffee, and let's dive in. This case is actually one I found because where it occurred, kind of, is actually now a haunted attraction. So I came across this article and it's about a haunted house type thing opening up in Dubois, Idaho. It's actually a haunted cave and it's put on by the Dubois Lions Club and it's called the Bootlegger's Grave. So basically they decided to take this kind of locally known urban legend slash actually a real crime case and turn it into a haunted cave. And so here is kind of the story. The bootlegger's grave, which is what the attraction is called, is within the civil defense caves in Dubois, Idaho. And it's in a cave where nearby a body had been found. So in 1979, A family was walking through this cave and they're looking for arrowheads and they come across a body. Well, part of a body. It was actually just a torso and it was wrapped in burlap and buried in a shallow grave about 18 inches deep. Found with it were dark colored pants, a white shirt with blue pinstripes and a maroon sweater. And so they bring this to police And police come in and they kind of, you know, kind of look around, but they don't really find anything else. So they just, they don't have a lot of information. They're like, all right, well, maybe something else will turn up. And nothing turns up for another 12 years. On March 30th in 1991, there was a little girl in this cave and she was walking around and she found a partially buried hand. And of course, comes out and tells adults who tells authorities and they go in and they kind of look in the area and they actually found an arm and two legs. So I'm assuming the arm and the leg belong to the torso that they found a few years ago? Yes, they do. But they still don't find the rest of the body parts, including the head, which makes identification a little hard. And as we know, in the 1990s, we are still pretty early before we're getting into the good DNA testing that we have today. So they get some volunteers. They're kind of looking around the cave and they're just not finding anything else again. So what they could vaguely tell was that the man had a reddish brown hair, um, was probably around 40 years old when he died, and that his body had been there maybe six months at least six months up to 10 or more years. And they're not sure what the cause of death was, but it's clear that his body was dismembered at this point. In 2015, a new sheriff's deputy starts working at Clark County, Idaho. And so they have jurisdiction over this case. And it's by all means a cold case at this point. The initial 
torso was found in 1979. We're at 2015 and we're not getting any leads. There was some speculation that maybe the body was that of some local man who was kind of known as a drunk, but they couldn't, couldn't fully say that without the head to the body to identify him. But this new sheriff comes on, John Clements. He's looking at unsolved murders in the county and he sees this one. It kind of sticks out to him. And he's like, okay, well, it's 2015 now. DNA is a lot more evolved than it was in 1991. So he starts to reach out to people and he connects with some people at Idaho State University and some anthropology professors there start to analyze the remains of the bones, which is very much like the show Bones, if, if you guys ever watched that. Literally, she's an anthropology profession and she's always studying bones and helping the FBI solve cases. Great show, one of my favorites. I recommend watching it. And so they're studying the bones and the remains and they're still not gaining a whole lot from it. Basically, same information that we had before. Um, they state specifically that he was younger than 50, but it's just not a lot to go on. And then the following year, Kira Stoll, who is a forensic anthropologist at the university as well, who came in just prior, invited the deputy to the campus to kind of explain the situation and the case and what's going on. So what I find interesting about this case is it's like starting out as this kind of local, mysterious, unsolved murder that, you know, they're only finding pieces of the puzzle and they're trying to figure out what's going on and everybody's very intrigued and trying to figure out what's going on. And I really appreciate that because I think a lot of us can relate to growing up and hearing about an unsolved murder or an unsolved mystery nearby and it really sticks with the locals and there's always a lot of like conspiracy and lore around it. So she has this um, knowledge of this software called ADBOU and it automates the process of converting skeletal measurements into age estimates. So they're trying to figure out more information, more concrete information to help identify this person and bring closure to the family. Can we just take a minute to appreciate how much technology has progressed over the years and how much we're able to find out now from not really having much to go off of? Yeah, um, we've talked about it a couple of times, how much we've advanced with technology in regards to solving crimes and cold cases. And this case is like textbook for that. And there's even more to come. I am excited to hear what you have to say. So what they determined from this is that this man is most likely from his mid to late 30s and that he was between 5'6 and 6'2. And then she determines that he likely had brown hair and she determines this from looking at hair follicles on the skin of the remains. I do think it's really cool that they're able to determine hair color and then height and all of this information regarding what he looked like and what his life was like just based on quite literally a pile of bones. I mean, they, they don't even have a skull and yet they're able to determine his hair color based on other hair follicles that they did find on his body. Which is just insane to me in and of itself. Like, can you imagine? <laughs> so this information is passed over to the National Missing and Identified Person System, which I'm sure most people who have looked into crime have heard of. And they bring in 
another person named Nicholas Homer, who is an osteologist at the Idaho Virtualization Laboratory. And so what he does is uses this fancy laser scanner that is able to go to the cave and do a scan of the cave to see if they're missing anything in there. Mind you, a scanner that costs around $43,000. So it's definitely more of a high-tech thing. Uh, It was called the FARO Focus 3D Laser Scanner, which, like, I'll be honest, means absolutely nothing to me. But maybe we have some people out there who are actually smart in technology and have heard of it. Um, I am not. (laughs) So I just confidently learned how to edit PDFs. So... (laughs) But unfortunately, despite all this and more volunteers coming in and them examining the cave system and the cave in the area even around where these remains were found, they are not able to find anything else. And so this just continues on throughout the years until 2019 when they decide to collab with the DNA Doe Project, which again, hey, we're familiar with them. Yes, you all have definitely heard us talk about them in the past many times. Um, They've gained a lot of acknowledgement in the past couple years because they've helped solve some very significant cases and they just do a lot of great work. But they come into this case to see if they can identify who this person is and then maybe try to close the case and figure out who murdered him. So they take DNA and on December 31st, 2019, the sheriff's department confirms that this John Doe is Joseph Henry Loveless. And this was directly through the DNA Doe project making a identification a little about a month prior in which they confirm it by comparing DNA to a living grandchild of this man. This is just another point to prove just how much technology has advanced over the years right and i just can't imagine being that person where they're like hey you are related to somebody who's their murder has been investigated for decades like what a crazy phone call to get i just can't imagine being that person who finds out that you have a connection to this murder victim from 30 plus years ago and you're the sole reason that they're going to be able to identify him because of your dna Like that, it's wild to me. I'm sure there's a lot of conflicting feelings with that though, because, you know, you've got the thought of, well, I can help solve this, but then you've also got, you know, you didn't know know them necessarily, but I'm sure there's still some sort of maybe sadness to the fact that they're not around anymore. I agree. So I'm sure that's just a really weird thing to experience in life, but I also think it could be really cool to know that your DNA is a big part in solving a murder that was almost from those from almost 30 years ago. So I'm glad you say it like that because what they find out, well, first off, let me just say the grandson that they compared DNA to at the time. So around 2019 was 87 years old. Oh, wow. Well, he could have known him then. So, well, I'm not sure if he knew him personally or knew of him. I know he didn't know the details of his grandfather's past. Oh, so he must have an interesting past. Well, this leads me into who was Joseph Henry Loveless. So Joseph was born on December 3rd, 1870 in Payson, Utah. 
Um, and he was born to some of the first members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that were in that area of Utah. And his parents' names were Joseph Jackson Loveless and Sarah Jane Scriggins Loveless. So what we know about him is that in 1899, he married Harriet Jane Savage and had a child with her. And then they ended up divorcing in 1904. And... At this point, he was 33 years old. Also, I want to mention, because I saw it in an article, and it made me think about it, how uncommon it was for a woman to be granted a divorce in this age. You're right. I didn't even really think about the fact that back then it was really abnormal for women to get divorced. You just said it, and I was like, oh, yeah, divorce. Yeah, it was definitely not a common thing that was happening in the early 1900s at all. And... He actually, the following year, marries Agnes Octavia Caldwell, and they go on to have four children together. So when he married Agnes, he was 34 years old. But the thing about Joseph is that he was actually not a great dude. And he had been arrested multiple times for different kinds of crimes. Um, He was a known bootlegger. He sold in a lot of areas where it was illegal to be selling alcohol and had other types of liquor violations. And when he was in jail, he was known for escaping jail. So he had a couple escape charges as well. The way he did this was he went by a ton of aliases. Um, There's a whole list of them. One of them that I will mention specifically is Charles Smith. And that will come up here in a minute. But oftentimes he would get away with carrying some type of blade hidden in his shoe. And then he would literally saw through jail bars and escape, which is like just so stereotypical of them like filing through a jail cell. It seems like something maybe you would look for is to see what all they're bringing into the jail with them, I guess. But he seems like he was a pretty innovative criminal, I guess. Right. I mean, yeah, he... He kind of reminded me a very watered down, well, until I tell you the part later, but a somewhat watered down version of Ken Rex McElroy, just him getting in trouble and kind of getting out of it. It's a different method he's getting out of it, but still. And something I have to say, since you pointed out him being an interesting person, I'm reading through all these articles and I come across one that's like, and something kind of weird about him is that he didn't have any eyebrows. That's interesting. (laughs) I was like, what? And then I went back and looked at his the photo they have, which I believe is his mugshot, and he doesn't have any eyebrows. Like, I guess, I don't know if he had something that caused him to not have any, like, hair growth there or if he shaved them. But it does, the photo, it makes, the eyebrows not being there makes you look twice. And I just thought it was so funny that they pointed it out specifically. Because, like, that's not that weird. It's really not that weird of a thing. I know a lot of people that shave their eyebrows Um, especially like drag queens who are always putting on makeup they typically a lot of them will keep it shaved and it just it's not it's not strange enough that it's you would think it would get called out but it did and then I just went back and I was like how did I miss that I think it's an interesting choice for him to not have his eyebrows (laughs) maybe something happened to him but I mean I guess technically it's his choice what he does well like it's his personal choice until we get to the next part (laughs) I mean, with his physical appearance. It's his choice what he does with his physical appearances. There we go. I felt the need to clarify that because it sounds like he's not a great guy. (laughs) 
right? And it gets so much worse. The mystery has been solved. Here at Crime Over Coffee, our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is Fire Department Coffee. And you can get some as well and save 15% with our exclusive coupon code CRIMEPOD15. Owned and operated by firefighters and veterans, 10% of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders. And with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. So in 1916, at this point, he is 46 years old and he is married to his second wife, Agnes, and they're actually living in a tent on the edge of Dubois, Idaho. And he was, I guess, according to some newspapers, doing some odd jobs around the railroad yards. I don't know what that means. Um, Obviously, railroad workers were really prominent at this time because that's, you know, when we're starting to get more railroads put in. I don't know exactly what he was doing, but if he's already been involved in some crimes, I'm sure there was a little bit of that sprinkled in as well. Basically, what happens is Agnes gets murdered by someone named Charles Smith, which was one of Joseph's aliases. And he murdered her with an axe and actually like chopped her to pieces. So pause for a second, Abby. It seems kind of like maybe he got what was coming for him. He chopped up his wife and then he then gets chopped up, right? So he doesn't seem to be a super stellar guy and People don't really seem to like him, so I'm not really surprised. And I really don't feel like you're going to end this story by telling me that he ended up being a fantastic guy who saved animals and rescued all kinds of children and, you know, dedicated his entire life to saving humanity or whatever. Safe to say, if you murder someone with an axe, you're a shitty person. I think is what Eric is getting at. So what's interesting to me is that because he has all these aliases, they like, they arrest this man Charles Smith, but also AKA Walt Carnes or Cairns. Um, he's giving, there's more than one name floating around, but what they soon find out is that it is in fact Joseph Loveless. And they find this out from his son who basically says that, no, my dad's in jail for murdering my mom and he's probably going to get out soon. So at this point in May of 1916, Joseph Loveless, a.k.a. 10,000 other aliases, is in jail for the murder of Agnes. And on May 18th, 1916, so at this point, Joseph is 46 years old and he was in jail for this. He actually escaped jail again because he had somehow brought in a saw in his shoe and sawed through one of the bars. Are you kidding me? I don't know. I'm not sure how that keeps happening. I mean, you'd think since he's already escaped a few times using the same method, they'd probably be like, hey, we should search for this prior to putting him in the jail cell. Well, my guess with this is he is moving around enough and he's in different jurisdictions back in the day and using aliases that that kind of communication. There's obviously not a database at this point. It's just not happening. It's getting lost. I guess I'm just used to today's world where we would, you know, check for things like that before putting somebody in prison it was the wild west man so what is assumed is that he died very shortly after escaping jail or was murdered 
very shortly after escaping jail because in a comment from um, a forensic genealogist named Lee Redgrave, she said, quote, the really cool thing, though, is that his wanted poster from his last escape is described as wearing the same clothing that he was found in. So that leads us to put his death date at likely 1916, end quote. I mean, he died in the same way that his ex-wife was murdered. You know, he killed her by chopping her up and then he was killed by being chopped up. So it seems like he really did get what's coming to him. They never figured out who actually was responsible for murdering him. But like you mentioned, he likely had quite a few enemies. And um, I think it's interesting, too, that you mentioned him getting dismembered as well as his wife, which was the crime he committed, which makes me wonder if it was someone close to her. I feel like it probably was somebody close to her, but it also sounds like he had quite a few enemies. You just you don't hear a lot about people being dismembered, typically, unless it's out of anger or some sort of overkill and it's typically a pretty personal kill at that point uh so it seems like it was probably somebody like you said that was friends of agnes or you know had some sort of beef with joseph well either way like i mentioned this case is not technically solved we do have the identification of the one strondo as Joseph Loveless. And as I mentioned up front, um, you can go to this cave system and there is a haunted cave attraction there. Um, in our links, I do include the Facebook page for that attraction if anyone's in the area and wants to check it out. I'm going to say something and it sounds in poor taste, but it's a quote from like one of the directors of the attraction. They talk about how they haven't found his head, so keep a lookout for that. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. Also, all of our sources can be found in the show notes of each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. Donations are greatly appreciated and assist in making the podcast possible. Other ways to support us include recommending us to friends and family, giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening medium. So again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.